The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to the Video Insiders. It's so great to be here. Dror, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited uh, to do another episode of the Video Insiders. I would say this is probably the uh, best part of my uh, day now, <laughs> doing this podcast. Although, you know, watching video all day isn't bad at all. That's not, that's not a bad job. You know, I mean, no. hey, you know, what, what do you tell your kids? So exactly, you know, this is, <laughs> you do. You know, I work a part-time out of my home office and my daughter comes in after school and she sees me watching those videos and she says, dad, what are you doing? So I said, you know, I'm watching videos, you know, it's part of my work. I'm checking quality, you know, stuff like that. And she says, what? That's your work? You mean they pay you to do that? <laughs> Where can I get a job like that? You get paid to watch TV. Now, of course, you know, I'm not kind of uh, like laid back on a sofa with some popcorn watching a full-length movie. No, <laughs> I'm watching the same boring video clip again and again, you know, like the same 20, 30 second segments. And I'm watching it with, with our player tool, with Beamer View. And typically, one half is is um, flipped over, you know, like butterfly mode. <laughs> <laughs> And then you're pausing on a frame and you're looking for these tiny differences and artifacts. So it's not exactly like, you know, watching TV in the evening, but you get to see stuff. You get to watch content. It's nice, but could get tiring uh, after a while. But I don't think I'll ever get uh, tired from this uh, this uh, podcast, uh, Mark. No, no, I know I won't. And I think, our, you know, going back to... Uh, what you do in your day job watching video, I think our listeners can relate to. It's a little bit of a curse because here you are on a Friday night. You want to relax. You just want to enjoy the movie. And what do you see? All of the freaking artifacts and all. Of the <laughs> <laughs> and you're and you're thinking that ABR recipe sure could have been better because I can see it just switched and it shouldn't have. And oh, anyway. I think yeah. uh, we we can all relate to that. Enough about us. Let's uh, you know. Let's launch into this episode. And I know that we're both super excited. I, I was thinking about the intro here, and one of the challenges is all of our guests are awesome, and yet it feels like each guest is like this is the best yet. <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. Today we have we have two of of, of really the leading experts we do. on video delivery. I've been running into these guys at various uh, industry events and conferences. They also organize conferences and, and moderate panels and chair sessions and really lead the industry over the top delivery and CDNs and all of that. So it's, it's a real pleasure for me to welcome to uh, today's uh, podcast, Dom and uh, Adrian from Ideas. Hey, Hi thank there. you very much. Hey, guys. Yeah, it's great to be on. How are you doing? Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about Ideas and the stuff you do there? Sure. So I Ideas is a specialist media workflow creation company. We build large-scale media systems, almost always dealing with live, with live video, so live events, be that sporting events or financial service type announcements. And we specialize in doing so on a very, very large scale and with extremely high service levels. And, and, and both of those, I guess, 
are really crucial in a in a live arena. You you only get one shot at at doing a live announcement of any sort. So, you know, if you miss the goal because the, the stream was temporarily glitched at that point, that's something that's kind of pretty hard to uh, recover from. We're kind of passionate about the cloud and and how that can help you build some interesting workflows and, and and deliver some 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 interesting levels of scale. And we're kind of primary constructors. Yeah, we're 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 a software company first and foremost. A couple of the founders have have a kind of software background. Uh, Dom is one of the original streamers ever, so um, Dom knows everything there is to know about streaming, and the rest of us sort of hang on his coattails, but uh, but have some of the skills to turn that into uh, ones and noughts that work for our customers. Really, Dom. So, how far back uh, do you go in your uh, streaming history? Well, and anecdotally, I sometimes like to count myself in sort of the second or third um, third webcasters in Europe. And interestingly, actually, one of the people who's slightly ahead of me in the queue is Steve Klee, who works with you guys. So uh, did the dance around Steve Steve Klee in the mid nineties. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a good twenty twenty three years now. I've been playing wow. streaming tech and fascinating. So on, so. I mean, we've we've come a long way, and probably will 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 talk a bit about this in 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 today's episode, but. First, there's something that really puzzles me is, is your tagline. The tagline of ideas is good on a bad day. So can you tell us a bit more about this? What do you mean by good on a bad day? It, it's kind of what we think is, is probably the most important single facet about how your systems behave, especially, again, in a live context. There are hundreds or possibly even thousands of companies out there who can do perfectly good a to B, uh, you know, video encoding and transcoding and and delivery when they're running in the lab. That's you know, and, and there's some great tools, to, you know, open source tools to enable to uh, you to do that. Things like FFmpeg and so on. What differentiates a kind of great service from from uh, a merely good service, though, is, is what happens when things go wrong. And and especially when you're working at scale, we think it's really important to embrace the fact that things will go wrong. You know, if you have a thousand servers running and you know x hundred events at any one particular time every now and then you know one of those servers is going to go up in a puff of smoke or a network's going to fail or a power supply is going to blow up or, or whatever else it may be and so what we think differentiates a great service from a, a merely good one is how well it behaves when things are going wrong all around you and partly because of the technology we use and partly because of the kind of background we come from technically when we entered the media space, so as a company, that was about eight years ago. Obviously, Dom's been in the space forever, but as a company, it's been um, you know, eight years or so. We we came to it from exactly that angle of how can we, you know, so our first customer was NASDAQ delivering uh, financial announcements on a purely cloud-based system, and they needed to be able to deliver SLAs to their customers that were vastly higher than the SLAs you could get for any one particular cloud service or cloud server. And so how you can deliver a fantastic end-to-end user experience, even when things inside your infrastructure are going wrong, we think is much more important than, than merely can you do an A to B media chain. That's interesting, Adrian. What uh, I know you guys are really focused on microservices, and maybe you can comment you know, about what you've built and why you're so vested in that architecture. With both things, there's nothing new in technology. So microservices as a... As a phrase, I guess has been particularly hot the last, I don't know, three, four years. 
Oh, it's the buzzy. It's the buzzy word. Drawer loves buzzy words. Microservices. Bzz, bzz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there exactly. we go. You, I'm afraid. You uh-huh. have to hear the rap. You have to hear his rap. I'm telling you, it's going to be number one on the radio. Number one on the charts. <laughs> going to be a hit. It's going to be viral. It's going to be a meme. So our approach to microservices, I'm afraid, is grounded in the 1980s. So if we're going to do a rap at that point, I'd need to have a kind of big bouffant hair or something in order to do in, in order to do my microservices. <laughs> <Vanilla ice. laughs> dude, you left your flares. You left your flares at my house, dude. Oh no, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. My spare pairs are on. It's okay. <laughs> Where and actually, a lot of the that sort of thinking comes from the telco space where when we were starting to get into in a past life i used to build online banks and big scale systems like that but one of the things that was interesting when we came to media is actually if you've got you know 500 live events running that's a big system you know the amount of data flowing through that with all the different bit rates and so on and so forth is is extremely high those 500 those 500 events might be running on a thousand servers plus in order to give you sort of full scale redundancy and so on and so forth and those servers might well be spread across you know three four five different data centers in in you know three four five different continents and there are some properly difficult problems to solve in the sort of wider space rather than specifically in the in the narrow space of, of a particular single element of that workflow. And we did some research a while back that said, actually, other people must have faced some of these challenges before. And in particular, the, the, the telco space has faced some of these challenges for a long time. And, you know, people get so used to just being able to pick up the phone and have the call go from A to B. And the technology by and large works so well that you don't really notice it's there, which is actually another good strap line, I think. You know, technology so so good you ignore it. That's that's kind of what we aspire to. Right. So we came across a technology called Erlang, which takes a whole approach to how you build systems. It's kind of different to to the traditional. As I say, it's it's it itself is not a new technology, and that's one of the things we like about it. But basically it says the problems that Erlang was trying to solve when it was created back in the 80s was specifically for things like mobile phone switches, where you would have a mobile phone switch would be a whole bunch of proprietary boards, each of which could handle maybe, I don't know, five or 10 calls or something. And they'd be stuck together in a dish, great big rack with some kind of backplane joining them all together. And the boards themselves were not very reliable. And in order for the mobile or for the telcos to be able to deliver a reliable service using this kind of infrastructure, if any one particular board blew up, the service itself had to continue. And other you know, calls, it was really important that those other calls weren't impacted and, and so on and so forth. So this language Erlang was, was, was invented specifically to try and solve that class of problem. Now, what was interesting is if you then wind the clock forward 20, 30 years from that particular point, and you consider something like the cloud, the cloud is lots and lots of individual computers that on their own aren't particularly powerful and aren't on their own aren't particularly reliable, but they're probably connected together with some kind of LAN or WAN that actually you know, is in pretty good shape. And the sorts of challenges that back then were really kind of custom to the mobile and network space have suddenly become incredibly good patterns of behavior for how you can build high-scale cloud systems and super reliable cloud systems. And so this, you know, as is always the case, these new shiny technologies, you know, Erlang, for example, had its uh, moment in the sun uh, about a year or so back when WhatsApp was bought by Facebook. 
Yeah, because when WhatsApp were bought by Facebook for $18 billion or whatever it was, um, I believe that WhatsApp had a total of 30 technical staff, of which only 10 were developers. And they built all of their systems on top of Erlang and and got some major advantage from that. And so when we came into the whole media space, we thought that there were some very interesting opportunities that would be presented by adopting those kind of strategies. And now what's nice then about where do microservices come into that? So in Erlang, or the way we build systems, you have lots of single responsibility, small bits of function, and you gather those bits of function together to make bigger, more complex bits of function, and then you gather those together to make progressively more larger scale and more complex workflows. And what's really nice about that as a strategy, so people are kind of increasingly comfortable with building yeah, using microservices where I'll have this to do my you know, packaging and this to do my encoding, and then I'll plug these together and so on and so forth. But when your language itself is is built in those kinds of terms, it gives you a very consistent way of describing about the user experience all the way through your stack. And the sorts of strategies you have for dealing with challenges or problems at a very low level are exactly the same as the strategies you have for, for dealing with you know, server outages and so on and so forth. So it gives you a very consistent way that you can think about the kind of problems you're trying to solve and, and, and how to go about them. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So basically, we're talking about building a very reliable system out of components where not all of these components are reliable all the time. And inside, those components are made out of further subcomponents, which may fail. And then when you employ a strategy of handling those failures and failing over to different components, you can apply that strategy at all levels of your system from the very small components to the large servers that do you know large chunks of work i could not have put it better myself that is exactly right and there's some kind of you get some secondary benefits you know so one is i am strongly of the opinion that when you have systems as large and, and as complex as the kind of media workflows that, that we all deal in there will be issues things will go wrong either because of you know physical infrastructure or just because of the the straight complexity of of the kinds of challenges you're, you're looking to meet so erlang would take an approach that says Let's treat errors as a first-class citizen. Let's not try and pretend they're never going to happen, but let's instead have a very, very clear pattern of behavior about how you go about dealing with them so you can deal with them in a very systematic way. And if those errors that are very, very kind of micro level, then the system will probably replace things that's gone bad and do so in a few, well under fractions of a millisecond. So you literally don't notice. We had a one particular customer where they had a component that allowed them to patch audio in to uh, a live media workflow. And they upgraded their end of, of that particular system without telling us or going through a test cycle or something, which was kind of disappointing. And a week or so into this particular, uh, yeah, after their upgrade, we were looking at just some logs from, from an event somewhere. And they seemed a bit noisier than usual. We couldn't work out why. And the, the event had been perfect. Nothing had gone wrong. And we discovered that the, yeah, they started to send us messages that weren't part of the protocol. So they were just incorrectly sending us messages you know, as part of this audio um, integration that they'd, they'd done. And they were just sending us junk. And the handler for it at our end was doing what it ought to do in those particular cases. And that was crashing and getting itself replaced. But you know, because we designed the system really well, the handler and the logic for it got replaced. The actual underlying TCP connection, for example, stayed up. 
and, and there wasn't a problem. And actually, we're having to restart the handler several times a second on a live two-way audio connection, and you literally couldn't hear that it was happening. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, you can get... But what's kind of nice is exactly the same strategy and the way of thinking about things and works yeah, right at the other level where I've got, you know, seven data centers and, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred servers running and so on and so forth. And it gives you a consistent vocabulary and a consistent strategy for how you reason about how you're gonna behave in order to deliver a, a service that just keeps on running and running and running even when things go uh, go bad. I'll give one example, then I'll probably um let Dom uh, share some of his views for a second, which was there was a, a reasonably famous incident a few years back when Amazon US East just disappeared off the map for about four days. And mm-hmm. a number of very large companies had some really big challenges with that and frankly were just offline for four days. We had 168 servers running in US East at the time for NASDAQ, or one of our customers. We did not get a support call. Yeah, you know, so all of the Amazing. events that were running on there failed over to um, other servers that were running in uh, US West. Typically, about five minutes later, we were back in a fully resilient setup because we'd created infrastructure in Tokyo and Dublin and various other data centers. So that had US West disappeared off the face of the earth as well. Again, we you know, we might have got a support call the second time around, but we literally read about it in the papers the next day. That's pretty incredible. Are there any other video? systems platforms that are architected on Erling, or are you guys the only ones? The only other one I am aware of um, out of the box is a company that specializes more in the kind of CDN and final content delivery side of things. So we're not quite unique, but we are certainly highly, highly unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to go to Dom and, you know, Dom, um, with your experience in the industry, I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of, you know, how companies are architecting their workflows, you know, are you getting involved in, I guess, sort of evolutionary projects? That is, um, you're extending existing platforms and, you know, you're sort of, uh, you know, in some cases, probably shoehorning uh, legacy (laughs) approaches, solutions, technologies, et cetera, to try and maybe bring them to the cloud or provide some sort of scale or redundancy that they need. Or are you, um, you know, are people just re-architecting and building from the ground up? What, What are people doing out there? And, you know, what are you specifically your clients? doing in terms of so it's interesting i I was uh, talking i did a a big review of the microservices space for streaming media magazine which came out i think in the october edition this year and that generated quite a lot of conversations and panel sessions and so on when we've been approached by uh, broadcasters who have established working workflows and they they're sometimes quite testy because because they've spent a lot of time and and they they're emotionally quite invested in what they might have spent you know a decade building and so on, so they often come with quite testy challenges. You know why what 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 advantage would this bring me and 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 quite quite often there's very little advantage in just making the change for the sake of making the change. The value really comes when you're trying to make trying to scale up or take benefit from scaling down. So you know with the, with a lot of our financial news clients there. Their cycle of webcasts, if you like, are strongly quarterly. They're, it's all about financial reporting at the end of financial quarters. So they they often want to scale down 
their infrastructure while uh, during the quiet weeks or quiet months because it saves them cost. Now, if you're doing 24-7 linear broadcasting, the opportunity to scale down may may simply never present itself. You just don't have the opportunity to scale down. Scaling up is a different question, but scaling down, you know, if it's 24-7, there's no real advantage to, to scaling down. And this is true of cloud as much as it is of microservices specifically. But when people come to us and say, right, we really want to make that migration, they sometimes start with the premise that they'd like to take tiny little pieces of the workflow and, uh, and, and just migrate those little tiny incremental steps. We tend to try to, in some cases we may do that, but we tend to try to convince them to actually build a microservice architecture or virtualized architecture to run in parallel. So quite often we might start with the client by proposing that they look at their virtualized strategy as a disaster recovery strategy in the first instance. And then what happens is after the first disaster, they never go back to their old infrastructure. I'm sure. And after that, they suddenly see they have all the benefits and it is reliable. And despite the fact that they have no idea where on earth this physically is happening, it's working and it works really reliably. And when it goes wrong, they can conjure up another one in in a matter of seconds or minutes. These are not apparent until the broadcaster actually puts them into use. Broadcasters, you know, I I spent 20 years trying to convince the broadcast industry that IP was going to be a thing. And then overnight, they suddenly, suddenly embraced it fully. And I, you know, these things, people do have epiphanies and they suddenly understand the value. Disaster recovery has been a nice, nice way to make people feel comfortable because it's not a suggestion of one day we're going to turn off your trusted, familiar, nailed down tin and move it all into something you have no idea where it is, what it's running on, when it, you know, how it, how it's running and so on. People are risk averse naturally in taking that type of leap of faith. But once they've done it, they almost invariably see the benefits and so on. And so it's about waiting for the culture in the larger broadcasters to actually place that confidence in the, if you like, the internet era, which generally means, as people who are being cynical, I used to I used to make testy comments on panel sessions about the over over fifties, oh, sixties. I don't know where you want to put your peg in there. <laughs> Once those guys finally let let the uh, internet natives uh, take control, that's when the migration happens. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I you know I can remember going back oh ten ten years or more and sitting in. Uh, the cable show, which, you know, no longer exists, but certain sessions there and Cisco was presenting, you know, virtualized network function. And when the room would always be packed and everybody, you'd have a sense if you're sitting in these sessions, like this is really happening. You know, this is, wow, this is really happening. And all the, you know, all the biggest MSOs are there. All the people are there. Right. And then you'd go come back the next year. It'd be the same talk, the same yeah. people in the room. And then you come back the next year after that. And nobody was oh, yeah, it's it. been at because least a, it's, it's a decade. Yeah. It, absolutely. It was yeah. always the future. Always I was making future. fun of <laughs> now the switch has absolutely flipped. And, you know, we're seeing that, um, you know, even on the codex side, because there was a time where unless you were a internet native, as you said, you needed a, a, a full solution, a black box, you know, it had to go in a rack, it had to, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what they bought. And so uh, selling a codec alone was a little bit of a challenge. But now they can't use black boxes. <laughs> in there. Well, so, sometimes, sometimes I liken it to the uh, era of sort of hi-fi as, uh, as digital audio and MP3 started to arrive, you know, I, I was quite, quite involved in MP3 as it emerged in the early in the sort of mid 90s and uh, I have over the 
last two decades flip-flopped from being the musician's worst enemy to best friend to worst enemy to best friend. And <laughs> it really just depends on the on the mood of the day. I was reflecting, this is a bit, a bit of a tangent, but I was reflecting when you guys were talking about sort of watching for artifacts in videos. I've spent so long watching 56K blocky video that Adrian and Steve and the rest of the team never, ever let me give any opinion on the quality of video because I'm quite happy watching some watching a 56K video projected on a, on my wall or sort of three meters wide and it doesn't bother me but i'm sure drawer would be banging his head against the wall if he, <laughs> if he saw that quality of video so. yeah no i also started with 56k video and and real video and uh all, all of those uh, players and still in the 90s but i kind of managed to upgrade myself you know to sd and then to hd and now if it's not hdr it's difficult uh to view but in, in any case if we look at this transition that is happening and there are several levels to this transition. I mean, first of all, you, you make the transition from hardware to software, then from the software to the cloud, and then from like regular software running in the cloud on VMs to this kind of microservices architecture with Dockers. And when I talk to customers, they say, yeah, we need it as a Docker. We're going to do everything as a Docker. But then, as Mark said, you're not always sure if they're talking about the far future, the near future, the present. And of course, it changes if you're talking to the R&D department or you're talking with the people who are actually doing the day-to-day -day production. There are some interesting, and I think Docker... It's maybe a slightly unpopular thing to say, but yeah. So we, I think Docker is fantastic, and yeah, we use it on a daily basis in development, and it's a great yeah. On my laptop, I can simulate a cluster of you know, eight servers all doing stuff and failing over between them, and so on and so forth, and it's and it's fantastic. And we've had Docker-based solutions in production for four years, five years, certainly a long time. And actually, we, we're we starting to move away from Docker as a delivery platform. Really? That's interesting. So you're kind of in the post-Docker era? Yes, already? I think just as other people are getting very excited that their software can run on Docker, which which I, I always get confused with announcements like that because Docker is essentially <laughs> another layer of virtualization. And strangely enough, you know, people, first of all, got excited because their software would run not on a machine, but on a virtual machine. And it takes quite a, a strange software requirement before the software can really even tell the difference between those. And then you move from a virtual machine to a Docker-type environment. Yeah, Docker, of course, being conceptually nothing new. And you know, it, it, it's a wrapper around something the Linux kernel has been able to do for 10 years or so. Yeah, and gives you certain guarantees about cleanliness and that this sandbox isn't going to interfere with this sandbox and so on and so forth. And And if those things are useful to you, then absolutely use Docker to solve those business problems. And another thing that Docker can do that, that, again, solves a business problem for me when I'm developing is I can spin up a machine, I can instantiate a whole bunch of stuff, I can create virtual networks between them, and then when I rip it all down, my laptop's back in pretty much the same state as it was before I started, and I have some guarantees around that. But especially in a cloud environment where I've got a premium job coming in of some sort, I'll spin up a server to do that and probably two servers in different locations to be able to do that. And they'll do whatever they need to do. And yeah, there'll be some complex network flows and so on and so on and so forth to deliver that. And then when that event's finished, what I do is I throw that server in the bin. And so actually Docker there typically is just adding an extra abstraction layer. And that abstraction layer comes at a cost, in particular in terms of disk IO and network IO that you know, for high quality video workflows, you want to go into you with your eyes open. 
And so when it's solving a business problem for you, I think Docker is a fantastic technology and some very clever mm-hmm. people are involved and so on and so forth. I, I think there's a massive amount of Kool-Aid being drunk, courtesy of Docker, where it's actually adding complexity and essentially no value. So I, I would say that if you have, a, as you said, if you have a business problem, for example, you have Linux and Windows servers, it's a given, you can't change that infrastructure. And then you want to uh, deploy a certain task or certain service, and uh, you want it, uh, you know, to work across them seamlessly with those standard interfaces that you mentioned, then, you know, Docker could be a good solution. On the other hand, what, what you're saying is that if I know that my cluster is fully a Linux, certain version of Ubuntu, whatever. And because that's how I set it up, there's no advantage in using the Dockers because, you know, I can plan the workflow or the workload on each one of those uh, servers and, uh, you know, at, at the level of cloud instances, launch and terminate them. And then I don't need the Docker. On the issue of overhead, we haven't seen a very large overhead for Docker. We always compare it to running natively. However, we did find that if your software is structured in a certain way, it can increase the overhead of Docker beyond like the average. Something important that came up in some of the panels at Streaming Media West and, uh, and Content Delivery World recently on, on this topic, you know, it's important to, at the moment, people talk synonymously about microservices and Docker. And that's not true. Just because something's running in Docker does not mean you're running a microservices architecture. In fact, right. if you dig it under the hood, huge all, monolithic servers, all too service often, exactly, just running on Docker. Exactly. All too often, people have just simply dropped their monolith into a Docker container and called it a microservice. And that's, um, well, I won't say it on mm-hmm. your podcast, but that's not true. Um, and I think that's very important. Hence, you know, we very much describe our Erlang based architecture as a microservices architecture. Docker is, a, as Adrian was explaining, it's a nice to have in certain circumstances. It's a, it's an essential, but in other circumstances, it's just not relevant to us. So it is important that Docker is, is a type of virtualization. It's nothing to do with microservices architecture. That's a very different thing. So, well, Adrian might kick me under the virtual table. No, here. no, no, that's all. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who will say if you take an application and you turn it into, uh, take a monolithic ap- application and, and, and microservicize it, what you have is a monolithic application that's now uh, distributed. So you, you've taken a hard problem and made it slightly harder. So, exactly, so, so exactly, what's probably yeah. more important is that you have good tools and skills and understanding to, to deal with the kinds of challenges you get in distributed environments. And, and actually, understanding your own you know, limitations is, is interesting there. I think if you look at how one coordinates stuff you know, within a particular OS application, then you know, microservices are a great way of structuring individual applications and they can cooperate and they're all sort of in the same space and you can replace bits of them and that's cool. And then if you look at the a particular you know, one particular server, again, your kind of microservices architecture there might go, okay, this particular unit's, uh, you know, this component is, is in an unhealthy state. I'm going to replace it with a clean version and yeah, you can do that in very, very quick time and that's all fantastic. And then maybe even if I'm running in some kind of local cluster, I can make similar decisions. But as soon as I'm running in some kind of local cluster, you have to ask the question, what happens if the network fails? You know, what's the probability of the network failing? And if it does, you know, what impact is that going to have on my service? Because yeah, you know, there's probably, it's just as bad it, typically to have two servers trying to deliver the same instance of the same live service as it is to have none, because they'll probably, you know, cause network floods and all sorts of bad things can happen as a result. So, And then if you look at 
a system that's just distributed over more than one data center, then absolutely just going, oh, I can't see that other service yeah, that's, that's part of the you know, microservice that's part of my overall delivery. Making decisions based on that is, is, is something you need to do extremely carefully. And there's an awful lot of academic work you know, done around consensus algorithms in, in the presence of network splits and so on and so forth. And it's not until you understand the problem quite well that you actually understand how damned hard the problem is. <laughs> you know, just the naive understanding of it is, oh, how hard can it be just to have three servers agree on which of them should currently be doing XYZ job? Um, turns out it's really, really, really hard. And there, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants because there's some amazing uh, work done by the academic community over the last um, few decades. Go and leverage the kind of solutions that they've put together to to help facilitate that. I think one of the upsides of Docker, though, is it has uh, subtly changed how dev teams are thinking. And I think it's been because it represents sort of the ability to build these isolated processes and think about passing data between processes rather than just sharing data in the way a monolith might have done. I think that started people to architect in a microservices architecture. But I think people think that that's a Docker thing, but it's not. Docker's more of a catalyst to it than an actual than actually bringing about the microservices architecture. That's interesting, Dom. I, I was literally just about to make the point or, or ask the question even. I, I wonder if Docker is sort of the first step towards truly microservices architecture for a lot of these organizations. And I think Adrian did a great job of breaking down the fact that a lot of maybe what is getting sort of sold or assumed to be microservices really isn't. But in reality, it's kind of that next step towards a microservices architecture. And I sounds like you you agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's part of the path, but it's uh that's right. Uh, you know, going back to my original statement. Sure I'd put it that strongly. It's it's it, it's an available tool in the space. Yeah. It's but an you, absolutely, tool. Yeah. you absolutely yeah. can build microservices that don't involve Docker anywhere. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't saying that Docker is a part of that, but I'm saying if you know if you come from this um, completely black box environment, you know where everything's in a rack, it's in a physical location. The leap to a truly you know microservices architecture is massive. I mean, it's disruptive on every level, <laughs> and, and it's and it's a great tool as part of that journey. I completely do agree. Yeah, with that. exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, this leads into a conversation or a topic that's really hot in the industry right now, and that's low latency. I was chuckling, uh, you know, I was walking around Streaming Media West just a couple weeks ago, and I don't think there was one booth. Maybe there was one. I just didn't see it. (laughs) Maybe the Panasonic uh, camera booth, you know, they didn't have low latency plastered all over it, but every booth, low latency, low latency. There's some some interesting stuff (laughs) around low latency because... There, yeah. there's a there's a beautiful reinvention of the wheel happening. Well, let's talk about this because you know maybe we can uh, pull back a little bit of the um, I don't know the myth uh, the myths that are out there right now and you know and also you know I'd like to have a a, a brief you know real uh, honest conversation about low late what low latency actually means. I think that's one of the one of the things that. Again, everybody's head nods, you know, low latency. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We want that too, you know? <laughs> but then you're like, yeah, everybody what does wants it. Mean? it. But <laughs> so, why do they want it? It's yeah. an interesting question. And yeah. I, I heard a very interesting theory today because all the time you hear about 
this effect of uh, if you're watching, uh, you know, a soccer game and uh, you have uh, a lot of latency because you're viewing it over the internet and somebody else has cable or satellite and they view it before you, then you hear all those roars of, of the goal from around the neighborhood and this annoys the viewer. So today I heard another theory that that's not the problem of low latency because to block those roars, you can just isolate your house or put on <laughs> headphones or whatever. The, pr- the real problem that I heard today is that if there's a large latency between the game between when the game actually happens and when you see it, then you cannot affect the result of the game. Okay, so the theory goes like this. You're sitting at home, you know, you're wearing your shirt and your fan, and you're sitting in a position that is a lucky position that will help your team. (laughs) So so if the latency is high, then anything you do cannot affect the game because it's too late. If the latency is low, you can still have some effect over over the result of the game. There was a a great advert for when when TiVo was brand new and there was the the first kind of personal video, yeah, digital video recorders were, were a thing. They had this fantastic advert where somebody was watching an American football game and there's, you know, they're in sudden death overtime and the kicker's just about to do a 45-yard kick. Yeah, and if it goes over, they win the game and if it doesn't, they lose the game. Kicker's just running up towards it and he kind of hits pause on the, on the live stream, <laughs> runs off to the church, you know, prays for half an hour, comes back and hits resume. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Oh, so that's a reason for for having uh, you know high latency. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of our customers, so, so, it, 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 yeah, it's interesting. Their primary business is in broadcast distribution, yeah, as in over the air type type distribution. But we do a bunch of their hybrid TV services, and as part of that, we actually have to do the direct handoff to a bunch of the TVs and set top boxes and so on and so forth, principally because the TVs and set-top boxes are so appallingly behaved in terms of the extent to which they do or don't follow standards and so on. So in order to deliver the streams to uh, a Freeview Plus HD TV in the UK, we just deliver them a broadcast quality transport stream as a progressive download. And entirely, so this has been live in the field for, I don't know, seven years or something. And entirely without trying to, we have an end-to-end latency of around two seconds you know, from when the viewer in their home sees it on their TV, you know, as opposed to the original signal coming off the satellite. And, and nowadays, that would be called super high, super low latency and, and yeah. jolly clever and remarkable and so on and so forth. And actually, it's primarily created by the lack of segmentation. That's right. Yeah. You know, what's happened that suddenly made, you know, an RTMP streams, would, you know, depended a little bit how much buff- buffering you had in the player and so on, but they typically, you know, to have an end-to-end latency in a video workflow based around RTMP, you know, of five, six seconds, that was that was normal. Nobody would really comment on it. And now, suddenly that you have segment-oriented distribution mechanisms, you know, like HLS and Dash and all these kinds of things, you know, People talk about low latency and suddenly they mean five to 10 seconds and and so on and so forth. And that's actually all been driven by the fact that I think by and large, CDNs hate media and, and they want to pretend that all media assets are are in fact yeah. you know, JPEGs or JavaScript files and so yeah. on and so or forth. Or web pages or yeah, exactly. like small chunks of data. That's what they know how to handle best. Exactly. And so the people distributing the content like to treat them as, as, as static assets and they, all of their infrastructure is built around the very, very efficient delivery of static assets, and that creates high high latency. And then, so you then get 
technologies like WebRTC, which you know, emerging, which we use you know, heavily in production for, you know, so one of our customers is a sports broadcaster. Um, their customers can deliver their own live commentary on on a system over WebRTC, and it basically doesn't add any any latency to the process because while we'll hand off the, the a low latency encoder the feed. You know, over WebRTC to wherever the commentator is, the commentator will view the stream and commentate. In the meantime, we'll go and do a really high quality encode. In fact, this is, might be a mutual customer, but I probably won't say their name on uh, on air. <laughs> okay. We'll go and do a really high quality encode of that same content in the meantime. And by the time we get the audio back from the commentator, we just mix that in with the crowd noise, add it to the, the video that we've already encoded at that point. And away you go. And and you're pretty much getting live commentary on a system for free in terms of end-to-end latency. Yeah, and then they're going on right. sports, so we should be using WebRTC. We should be doing this kind of, you know. The problem, CDNs don't like WebRTC, not least because it's a connection-oriented protocol. You can't just do the same for everybody. You've got to have separate encryption keys, and it's all peer-to-peer and you know, so on and so forth. And so it, right. it doesn't scale using their standard models. And so most of the discussion around low latency, as far as I can tell, is the extent to which you can pretend that you're, you're – you're, Segmented assets are in fact live streams, and so you know some, some Akamai has this thing where they'll they'll start playing a segment before it's finished, and so on and so forth. Well, actually, it starts to look an awful lot like a progressive download at that point. That's a great point. That's a- a- absolutely, absolutely. And what I find, you know, as I've walked around. Like I said, walking around streaming media West and you know looking at websites, reading marketing material of all of everybody who has a low latency solution, with a few exceptions, nobody's addressing the end to end factor of it. So it sort of cracks me up when I see an encoding vendor really touting low latency, low latency, and I'm seeing her thinking, I mean, drawer, you know, what are we like twenty milliseconds? <laughs> Like, how much more low latency can you get than that? Yeah, but, at the codec level, yeah, it is the, very low. At the codec level, you know, and then when you begin to abstract out, and of course, you know, the process adds time, right? But but still, I mean, the point is, is like, it, it's, uh, I don't know, I guess part of what I, I, I sort of am reacting to and, and, you know, what I'm looking for, even your response is that <laughs> end-to-end, yes, but addressing latency end-to-end is really complicated because now, you know, just as you said, Adrian, you know, now you have to look at, you know, the CDN and you have to look at what you're doing on packaging and you have to look at even your player architecture, like progressive download, you know, some players can deal with deal with that great, other players can't, you know, so so what do you do? So uh, one of the one of the things that I think you know just stepping back and having a reasonably long game view of the uh, of the evolution of the industry over here in in the UK particularly and in Europe in general low latency's been a thing for 15 20 years and the big thing that's changed and why low latency is all over the sort of global US driven press is the deregulation of the gambling market and that's why everyone's interested in low latency you know over here in in the UK we've had gambling online for live sports for 15, 20 years. And for everyone, I, I used to run a CDN from sort of 2001 to sort of end of the 2000s. And it was, you know, all, all the clients were interested in was fast start for advertising for, for VOD assets 
and uh, low latency for betting delivery. And you know, obviously, low latency is important because the lower the latency, the later you can shut your uh, shut your betting gate. And if you've got a 10 second segment or a 30, you know, 30 second, two and a half, three segments to wait, you've got to shut your betting maybe a minute, half a minute before the race finishes or before the race starts, whichever way you're doing the betting. And that was very important over here. Um, you didn't have a gambling market in the States online uh, until last year, I believe. And so low latency just really wasn't very interesting. People were really only interested in, can I actually deliver reliably a big audience rather than can I deliver this to even small audiences, but with low latency because I've got a betting market going on. And as that betting deregulations come in, suddenly all the US-centric companies have become really fascinated in whether they can shorten that low latency and uh, and so on and so forth. And you know that's why companies 15, 20 years ago over here, some of the big sports broadcasters and so on, they were using RTMP extensively so that they could get their so that they could run their betting gates until the last second. And it, it really ramps up the amount of betting in those in, in those few seconds before before the race starts. So that's why that's why it's important. It's not it's it's not uh, not for any other reason. In fact, I sometimes rather sourly ask audiences if they really ever heard uh, their neighbours cheering to a football game before they've seen it. Because being quite honest, when you're socially gathering around the TV, and it's an important game like that where your neighbours might have the t- have their TV on loud enough. You frankly got a TV and it's on as well. The, the the real the real sort of benchmark of the whole thing is can you beat the tweet? That that's the sort of measurable thing. And there's so little data in a tweet, and a lot of tweets are machine generated. You know, goals scored, and it doesn't even take a fan in the stadium to type it and send it to his friends. It's just instantly updated. Trying to beat a few packets of data across the world compared with trying to compress video, get it buffered, get it distributed across probably two or three stages of workflow, decoded in the player and rendered, you're never going to beat a tweet at that level. So yeah. uh, so it, it really the excitement is about betting and the deregulation of the betting market and, and gambling market so, in the So US. that's interesting. Uh, today you don't measure the latency between an over-the-air broadcast and the over-the-top over-the-internet broadcast, but you want uh, to beat another over-the-internet broadcast, which is a very small uh, packets of, of the tweet so exactly you're actually it, it, competing with with the social networks and not the broadcast network exactly you know i can remember uh, rather uh, tongue-in-cheek when uh, when whatsapp were bought they were, were boasting about the number of messages they they dealt with a day and yeah I can, it, was, it was a very large number billions of messages a day and i can remember doing a little uh, back of an envelope uh, calculation that if you based on the adage that a picture was worth a thousand words and yeah, across all the various different events and channels and you know, live sports and stuff like that that, that that we cover, if you if you counted a thousand words for every frame of video that we delivered, we, we were like two orders of magnitude higher than, <laughs> than, than, than WhatsApp. No. So yeah, so you had more traffic in your small company. You had more traffic than WhatsApp. Yeah. A thousand, a picture is worth a thousand, a thousand words, and then you have twenty-five or fifty all pictures every second. Every second. <laughs> and this is across all of your channels, so yeah, that's obviously a lot you can of words. That's yeah. a lot of words. It made yeah, me chuckle yeah. anyway. Yes. Well, this that's is great. We always say 
video is is complicated and now we know we know why (laughs) exactly well this has been an an amazing discussion and i i think we should bring it to a close with i'd really like your perspective you know adrian and dom you're you're working with broadcasters and you know you're presumably sitting right in the middle of this ott transition you know dom i know you mentioned that for 20 years you've been evangelizing ip and now finally it's a thing you know everybody gets it (laughs) But, um, you know, just uh, curious, maybe you can share with the listeners some trends that you're seeing. How is a traditional broadcaster, someone who's operating a little more of, uh, you know, your traditional infrastructure, et cetera, how are they adopting OTT, you know, into their workflows? Are they building parallel workflows? Are, are some forklifting, you know, and, and making the full IP transition? I think this is a great conversation to end with. I think we're at the, right at the cusp of, of exactly that. So none of our, you know, our customers are doing it side by side if they are you know full-blown traditional broadcasters i think increasingly a lot of our customers who maybe deliver exclusively over the internet would also consider themselves broadcasters and so i think the parlance is is you know is perhaps slightly out of date but there's one of the things that i think is is really interesting is some of the cultural challenges that come out of this so one of our customers who is a a full-blown traditional broadcaster where you're dealing with you know, fault tolerant large scale systems of the of the sort that, that ideas builds then yeah you know, one of the things that's a given is that it's going to be a computer that decides which server is going to be responsible for you know which particular you know this is bbc one's encoder this is yeah you know, whatever itv's encoder or whatever it's going to be a computer that makes those decisions because a computer can react in milliseconds if one of those servers is no longer available and reroute it somewhere else and this wasn't a public cloud implementation. It was a private cloud implementation. And they had a couple of racks of servers and you know, the management infrastructure on top that was doing all of the dynamic allocation and fault tolerance and all this clever stuff. And they said, so when we're showing our customers around, if, if Channel 4 comes around, how can we tell them which is their encoder? And we said, you can't. <laughs> there, there isn't a Channel 4 encoder. There's, there's an encoder that might be doing the job. And one of the features we had to add to the product as just to get over the cultural hurdle with them was the concept of a preferred encoder. So if everything was in its normal happy state, then you know, this particular encoder you know, halfway down on the right-hand side of Rack 3 was going to be the one doing you know, Channel 4. And just those simple things where they think and you know, people do still think in terms of, of appliances and raw iron and, and so on and so forth. And, and some of the challenges... To, to move away from that into you know cloud thinking, be it you know, actually on the cloud or not, you know, cloud thinking still applies. It, it's funny where people trip up. So I just wanted to, you know, one of my bugbears in the industry, I, I'm a bit of a pedant with some of the terminology that gets used and so on. One of my bugbears is the term OTT. So having spent you know, a, a good long while playing with video and audio distribution over IP networks and so on. I struggle to think of any any broadcast technology which doesn't use IP at some point in its either production or distribution workflow. There just isn't any now. And uh, so, you know, if, you, if you're watching live news, the contribution fees are coming over cell phones, which are contributing using a streaming, some sort of streaming protocol or uh, some film or t- TV program production. People are emailing files or they're dropboxing files or they're sending them through digital asset management systems, however it may be. But the, the programs are being created using IP 
and have been for quite a while. And increasingly, you know, nobody replaces technology with some sort of proprietary non-IP based tool these days at any level in the broadcast industry. I rather stalwartly do everything I can to try to, to try to avoid using the word OTT. And being a pedant about it, OTT simply means the paywall is outside of the last mile access network. That's all it means. It has nothing whatsoever to do with video distribution or streaming or anything like that. It's simply to do with where you take your payment from somebody. So, you know, Netflix is has, has a hybridized side, but Netflix, you generally access through an ISP. And when you make your payment, you pay Netflix directly. You don't pay through your ISP. That is an OTT service. Skype is an OTT service. Again, you connect through your phone service, your cable service, whatever it may be, but you actually subscribe directly with Skype. That is a true OTT service. And that's what OTT means. It's become, in the last two years, synonymous with streaming. And I can't think of a broadcast network which doesn't at some point use IP, either streaming or file file transfer-based uh, uh, technologies to compose the program. So broadcast is streaming. Streaming is broadcast. They have been synonymous for over a decade. It is the uh, how you collect the payment, which defines something as OTT. And it may well be that you can receive a video stream outside of a outside of a, outside of one particular ISP's network, but that doesn't really mean anything. So this battle between broadcast and OTT, it's a meaningless decision of where you're collecting payments for me. It really doesn't have any bearing on on the technologies that we all work with, which are video compression and distribution and so on. So that's brilliant. That is uh, really, really a uh, smart observation and analysis there, Dom. Well, I think we should wrap it up here. We definitely need to do a part two. I think we will have you guys back. There's so much more we could be talking about. But I want to thank our amazing audience. Without you, the Video Insiders podcast would just be drawing me talking to ourselves Taking up, yeah. buzzing to ourselves, some <laughs> buzzing, buzz buzzing, buzz, buzz, buzzy words, buzzing, buzzing, taking up bits on a server somewhere. <laughs> and this has been a production of Beamer Imaging Limited. You can subscribe at thevideoinsiders.com, where you can listen to us on Spotify, on iTunes, on Google Play, and more platforms coming soon. And if you'd like to try out Beamer Codex in your lab or production environment, we're actually giving away up to 100 hours of HEVC and or H.264 encoding every month. Just go to beamer.com forward slash free, that's F-R-E-E, to get started. And until next time, thank you and have an awesome day encoding video. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.